All right, let me go ahead and ask you to uh, get your Bible out if you would. If you don't have a scripture, we got one for you to take home. It's in the back. You're welcome to have that. But before we enter into this time of, of teaching, I want to do a special time of prayer. Um, many of you got our email this week. Well, let, let me back up. I didn't know that on the Sunday that Jay was going to be baptized, that I'd be preaching on Matthew 5. And blessed are those who mourn. Um, one of the reasons that it's a, Hal, it's a blessing to have you with us today. One of the reasons Hal's singing today, Hal Bowman's one of our elders. He's not been in worship with us publicly for some time because of his care of his wife and her cancer. Allison was diagnosed with cancer in December. And you probably got an email this week that on Thursday, they received news that she's going to transition to hospice care. And so we'd already asked how, would you sing on a Sunday because of the close friendship you have with the farmers? We love it when you, would you sing on a Sunday when the baptism is? Little did, did I know I'd be preaching on blessed are those who mourn. And also that your wife would receive the diagnosis she did. And so we're going to just pray for the Bowmans for the Lord's comfort and care in everything. And uh, I have grown so much by the interactions I've had with you and your faith, Hal, and Allison's. She's witty. As, she's still witty. She's got it. And she, she's trusting in the promises of God, but she's in a hard place. And so we're going to pray right now for Hal, Tyler, Sarah, and certainly for Allison. I just ask you to join me in that right now. Father, you know all things. I think, Lord, of your seeing the Israelites after all those years of slavery and you looked and you saw their affliction and your word tells us that you knew. You knew just where they hurt, just how scared they were, just how, how much of a trial of faith they were having and yet you sent your service Moses, servant Moses and you were going to do a work to rescue them from the oppression and slavery they know. Fast forward, we know that in this life, one greater than Moses has come, Jesus, our rescuer. And far more than just slavery to Pharaoh, we know the slavery of sin and death and life in the shadow of death. And Lord, we have been grieving and feeling the affect of that alongside Hal and Allison and their children. But we know that you see, we know that you know. Father, it's in moments like this that we have to believe that what we've believed, we believe. And we ask today that you would comfort those who mourn. And we ask today that we would also rejoice with those who are rejoicing of the promises of your word that are real and have to be believed to be real. And we ask that you'd mature our faith in this day, particularly for our brother Hal, that he would be given a strength he didn't know he has, that you'd be with Sarah and Tyler. And we do thank you that Allison has no pain. And we pray that you would just give this family beautiful days and that you've ordained everything. You know, the number of hair in our heads, breath in our lungs, days of our lives. We trust you. And we ask you now allow us to enter into that trust with this beautiful family. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, I'll transition into a text that's very consistent with even that prayer. 
Let me enter in by way of illustration before we read it. Um, I am tired of construction around this building. I, I, I park on the side, I parked, I claimed a spot beside the building. We have a preaching workshop this week. There's 40 pastors coming from across our region. And my greatest fear is we might lose some of them before they get in the building. <laughs> Literally. Last week I went out, there's gaping holes in the earth in front of us. And I talked to some of the good old boys and said, hey, is this going to be done? I mean, not done, but like next week, can people walk into the building? I'm like, well, I don't know. But I promise you we'll fence it if it's a hole. I'm like, great. How long is this going to last? Is it going to be a blessing when it's done? Yeah. I mean, the entire downtown's infrastructure is being changed. No more power lines. Everything under the ground. Places for people to, to just hang out and walk. I think it's going to be fantastic. We're sitting in the epicenter of it that God wanted our church to be in this place. But here's the question. Is there blessing in it now? If there is, what is the blessing while we wait? I use that illustration to draw you now to where we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, 17, Jesus said the same thing with his first words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's the question. We know when the kingdom of heaven comes in full, there will be blessing. But as it's being constructed, what's the blessing now? Right? Jesus came. He revealed the glory of God. He lived perfectly. He identified with us. He suffered sin's consequence. He was resurrected. He sent the Holy Spirit. So we're waiting for the kingdom that's being constructed to be completed. Question is, what's the blessing now? There is blessing because the king tells us there's blessing. And that's where he starts in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are. It's present tense. Blessed are. And so stand with me. Let's hear what King Jesus says to us who participate in his kingdom by faith. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and then when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is the word of God. Father, would you help us to believe that which our King tells us now? The blessing now as well as what shall be. Give us faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So recall with me, Matthew 4, we looked at it last week. Jesus has been baptized. Heaven opened up to declare the identity of the Son. Spirit drives him into the wilderness and he identifies with his people such that he undergoes temptation. He's without sin. That's where we've been. And then last Lord's Day, we said, and check it out. He goes to a place, just like we're in a place. He goes to a place called Galilee, and the kingdom just explodes. He teaches with authority. The kingdom comes down to earth so visibly that you see epileptics, paralytics, those living in the shadow of death, those who are sick and weak. He heals them, and we see at the end of chapter 4, his fame started to spread. Everybody brought whoever they could bring to Jesus. And then we read our verse. Then seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So understand just the, 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 the way it works. He sits, then the disciples come. That's actually significant. What, what, what does that mean? Well, rabbis, when they would teach, the, the, the rabbinic posture would be that of teaching. Classes in session, students sit down. 
And so Jesus comes. He's got authority they've never seen before. He goes and he sits on a hill. And the disciples, they all come to him and they sit. And he opens his mouth, the text says in verse 2. And nine times he says, blessed are. Blessed are. We call these the Beatitudes in Latin. It comes from the, the word be, that, that has the same root of beati. So these are the Beatitudes that he starts with. But the word blessed or, or the root blessing to bless should be rather well known to Matthew's audience. It is to us kind of. We don't use it in our vernacular very often. If you do, we think weird thoughts about how often you say bless your heart to somebody. But it's not as common now as it would be to Matthew's readers. Super, super important word. Let's go back to the covenant with Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. Let me read to you. The Lord said to Abram, go from the country and your kindred and your father's house to the land. I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you I will curse and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is one of those early promises in the covenant of grace. It's a word that means something. The prophets would use, would use this word, right? The prophets either came and they spoke blessing to those who'd obey and were living inside of God's law and his kingdom, or the opposite word they would use, they would bring curses down. They would say, woe. So it's either blessing or woe. And now Jesus the king shows up, heavens come down to earth, and he starts with his first word, blessed. Blessed are you if you're in my kingdom. Now it's a word of pronouncement. We know what a pronouncement is, right? A pronouncement is a declaration over someone. When R.C. Sproul preached a sermon on this, I was listening to it last week, I was running, I was laughing, because he spent like 10 minutes angry about how it doesn't mean the word happy. It was great. I won't spend 10 minutes on why it's not the word happy. I did try to think of synonyms nowadays, and I always get them wrong. I use them in the wrong place. You know, we used to say pumped in my generation. I got younger adults here. Now you say lit, or you say yes, queen, or whatever. Whatever means it's awesome, right? That's not what this is saying. And that's what is very, very clear. It's not just a semantic of happy. No, it's a pronouncement of blessing. So at the end of our service today, and almost every week, we experience a benediction. It's a word of blessing. It's the benediction that God gave to Aaron to speak over God's people. And what's the first phrase of it? The Lord bless you and keep you. Now, some of you, when you receive the benediction at the end, not all of you, and we've never told you you needed to, but some of you, you do this with your body. Put your hands up and you posture like this. Why is that? It's a posture of reception, right? So we really, on a week-by-week basis, try to remind you in how we ask you to kneel in confession, just remind you that your body is connected to your heart. I don't watch my kids' sporting events and just sit there, just doing nothing. My body's involved. When I would be a coach, I'm pacing, I'm sitting. Everybody knows I threw my hat. It means something because my body and my heart are connected. So many of you receive the benediction with readiness because that's what the Beatitudes are. They're pronouncements of blessing. One commentator says it like this. When we consider the Beatitudes, it's to be received with a posture of dependence, not of performance. We're dependent on kingdom realities to be given to us as opposed to believing that if I perform in this way, then I'll know the blessing in the kingdom. It's a major thing for us to discern. 
Notice that the blessing is promised now with after effects. Was walking through a gas station this week, looked over and saw that kind of candy. I haven't had it in a long time. But now and laters, you actually got on their website. Here's what they say about them themselves. The long-lasting chews. Right? You can enjoy it now and later. Right? Not just now, but now and later. And that's what the Beatitudes are. Blessed are those in my kingdom now because of what shall be later. Super important for us to understand that this is a pronouncement from the king. It's the first thing he does as his disciples come to him on the side of that hill. We're going to look at the first three Beatitudes today. I'll preach the next three next week, and then AJ is going to take a few weeks in a row. But these first three are easily clumped together. And I think the reason that we'll clump them is for you to understand that here's, here's the essence of what these first three do. is they, they essentially say, in Christ's kingdom, who you are is who you know you are and nothing more. If you are weak and you are broken and you are poor of spirit, that's the posture you bring into his kingdom. He knows. You live in a world of pain and trial and sorrow. You mourn, and it's the posture to bring to the king in his kingdom. So you're nothing more than what you are in his kingdom in a way, and you bring nothing into it. So let's start with the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does this mean? Well, poverty of spirit is not poverty materialistically. It's rather important. It's not poverty related to money, because poverty itself is amoral. We have to understand it, just not having enough of something. It's just a reality. But poverty, materialistically, can be brought on by sloth or negligence. We know that. It can be brought on by tragedy. It can be brought on by the providence and provenance of one's birth. Born into a time, into a place where poverty is reality. Think of James Mutetti, who was here a few weeks ago from Kenya. This is reality for so many. You know, poverty can actually be pursued voluntarily. And yet, a person who's a believer who says, I'm going to give away all that I have, I'm going to live as one in material poverty, can actually do that and then not have poverty of spirit because it could harden into pride. So they're not the same thing. It's not poverty materialistically. What else is it not? It's not low esteem. It's not thinking bad of oneself. It's not a depressive spirit. It's not introversion or shyness. It's not a poverty of courage. It's not the lion in the Wizard of Oz. It's not a poverty of zeal. Yeah, you just don't have enough oomph. That's not what it is. Let me give you a simple definition. To be poor in spirit is to be without pride. R.C. Sproul calls it a poverty of arrogance. It's the opposite of the scribes and the Pharisees who showed up on the scene, observed John's baptism, and they were so proud of their righteousness and their riches. It's the opposite of that. So think with me of Psalm 40, verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. That's just what I am. Blessed is the one who's weak and helpless and knows that they have need that they cannot satisfy on their own. They can't comfort themselves fully, certainly can't save themselves fully. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, the poor in spirit are bankrupt, are the bankrupt of this world, and they know themselves to be so. No one can be a Christian without poverty of spirit. Think of it that way. Certainly we want to have increasing poverty of spirit, but you don't even believe the gospel if you aren't poor in spirit because you think that you have what's required to earn the riches of God's kingdom on your own. Think of 
Luke chapter 18, the tax collector. Remember, remember the Pharisee when he prays, the Pharisee says, man, I'm so glad I'm not like this dude. Like, <laughs> I'm doing well. And the tax collector won't even look up, the text says, beats his chest and just says, Lord, have mercy on me. Well, this morning, AJ read from Luke 14, this parable Jesus taught about those coming to a banquet, the wedding feast, and those who were invited that had something better to do are obviously moved past, but consider who's actually there. Let me describe the people who come, the lame, the crippled, the blind. They're those who show up and they look around and they say, I shouldn't be here. That's poverty of spirit. When I was in the role of being an executive director of a mercy ministry, I would go into these big philanthropy gatherings, oftentimes at large houses in large neighborhoods, right? And you ever have, I would pull up in my little Prius. Priuses are awesome, but it wasn't the place to drive up with a Prius. And you'd look around. I mean, it was just this feeling of, yeah, I really shouldn't be here. Like, I don't run in your crowd. I don't know if I ever could or should. Or how am I even supposed to act now? Picture the lame and the poor and the crippled and the blind at a party thrown by a king and they look around like, what do you, which fork do you use? I shouldn't be here. Let me give you one other example. Luke chapter 7. There's a centurion. He's got this servant that means a lot to him and that servant's very sick. And they know Jesus is doing healing. So two of his servants go and find Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, our master's an amazing man. He built a lot of the buildings in this city and he's a man of integrity. He is worth you coming to heal his servant. That's what his friends say. And then when Jesus starts to journey to go see the centurion, the centurion learns that he's coming and he goes out and intercepts Jesus and says, whoa, 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 stop. I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and I know you'll heal my servant. That's poverty of spirit. I know that I'm not worthy, and yet to one who has that mindset, the, the eternal worth of the kingdom of Jesus is what's offered to us by faith. Now, here's the problem. We are urged in today's culture to develop every other dang kind of spirit possible except a spirit that's poor, the way the text describes it. Any other spirit but that. It's insidious, right? I mean, it just means it just creeps into everything. It's everywhere. I spend a lot of times on kids' sports sidelines, and no offense to, I'm one of those parents, apparently. But it's this trial when you look at parents and their, their mindset is, I'm just trying to give my kid every opportunity that they could possibly have, and I will clear every obstacle out of the way. I'll pay any amount of money necessary. I just want to give them every opportunity possible. For, and it's just at one point you say, for what? For what? Not for poverty of spirit. That's not the end of that path. Or how about social media? And I can maybe say this with confidence. I'm not trying to judge your heart, but I'm going to just judge our culture. You and I have never posted a single picture that helped us grow poor in spirit. Not a single one. And when we scroll through the newsreel and we look at other people's stuff, it will not help you develop poverty of spirit. I want to say something to all of you, but I will, if you're high school or above, young adults, this is what you need to look for. 
in friends, in a spouse, in the kind of church you're going to attend. People who are decreasing in their own valuation that the God who saves mercifully receives all the glory. And it is very hard to find. This is what you must pray toward. And this is usually what we must all repent of the most. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is going to be the riches of the kingdom of glory. Next one. Blessed are those who mourn. That's a strong word. It's those who grieve a profound loss. Now, reading different commentaries, some commentators will say, well, the mourning we're talking about here is mourning sin and its effect. I think that's true at some level. It's got to be, right? Think of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. He goes, he takes his inheritance, he goes, he squanders all of it. But we know, Luke 15 verse 17, we read this a really clear statement. When he came to himself and he realized he had lost everything, and then he has to wonder, if I just go back and ask my father to treat me like a servant, at least it'll be better than it is now. He came to himself. Why? Because he realized what his sin had cost him. Certainly there's mourning over sin. We can go from that parable. How about we go straight to David, his Psalms, Psalm 32. He says, when I know my sin, my bones wasted away. Have any of you dealt with the consequences of sin so much so your body aches? Or how about Paul in Romans chapter 7? What a great description of a sinner. When he just says, ah, the things I do, I don't want to do. The things I don't want to do. And I'm so sick of myself. And I know I deserve death. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So mourning over sin is definitely described here. But those who mourn over sin, what's the promise in the moment? If you turn to Jesus, your king. It's comfort. So think of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye. My people, says God, speak comfort to Jerusalem. Tell her that her warfare with sin has ended and that her iniquity has been pardoned. So as soon as somebody knows my sins are forgiven, comfort crushes the mourning. But they go together, don't they? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, that we don't grieve our sin like the world grieves. That just leads to death and depression and anger. But those who repent of sin and grieve of it, they grieve with a hope to the point that they have a salvation without regret, which is an amazing description. I mean, repentance after a horrendous sin that has hurt others can yield a result of being so thankful for salvation, I actually have no regret of the sin in the first place. How's that work? Well, because the true grieving of that sin led me to an understanding of the grace of the gospel, and now I'm changed as a result of it. I'm comforted. So I think it does have to do with sin, but we, we have to go broader than that. Think of Matthew 4 when Jesus is healing all those who are hurting and living in the shadow of death in Galilee. We mourn decay and death, not just sin, don't we? We mourn the fact of the fall, the extent of the fall, relationships that are broken, addictions we can't crack. We mourn communities that are not experiencing hope and peace. We mourn governments that are evil and wicked. We mourn oppression. We mourn infertility. We mourn child slavery. I mean, blessed are those who mourn before Jesus the King and Rescuer, for they shall be comforted. 
They shall be, as in future Revelation 21, when the king comes, he's going to wipe every tear from every eye, and death will be no more. There'll be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Sinclair Ferguson says, we're comforted now, but you will cry again. But the day is coming when we will be comforted and the tears will be wiped and never need to be wiped again. That's a glorious word. So let me say a few practical things about mourning before I go to the third one. There is beauty and wisdom to mourning. That's what I tried to share with the kids. Let me read to you from Ecclesiastes 7. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So it would be a very sad thing if we were so happy, clappy as a body of Christ that every time people come in, they are told that they have to feel happy. Because Ecclesiastes says the wise go into the house of mourning. They don't just fixate on having to be in the house of gladness. Because we're in a time where redemption's needed and there's not always the ability to dismiss the grief just to think of something happy. Another thought here, individual mourning should always be layered with corporate mourning. Think of Hannah. When we studied the book of 1 Samuel, remember? She's infertile. She wants to have a child and she goes to Eli in the temple and she's grieving her own situation. But then the priest is bankrupt. He doesn't even know what purity and holiness look like. And so we have this window into the fact that it's not just Hannah who's in a bad place. All of Israel is bankrupt because the priesthood is completely obstructing the goodness and the mercy extended by God. So her individual mourning has to be layered into communal mourning. You and I, when we hurt, if we go only into ourselves and we cannot look outside of ourselves at those who are mourning, we have a major maturity problem. Think of this as well. The comfort offered to you and me in the gospel right now is greater than the comfort being offered on that hillside outside of Galilee. It's hard to believe that. But in John chapter 14 and John 16, Jesus said, you know what? It's going to be good that I go away because when I leave, the Father and I are going to send the Spirit. And what's another name for the Spirit? The Comforter. And he's going to convince you and convict you and comfort you and reside inside of you. It's actually better that I go. Do you believe that? Mourning is a critical avenue to see Jesus. Isaiah 53, he was acquainted with grief. He knew all of our sorrows. He had the accumulative effect of our sin placed on him. You want to be led to Jesus? Go through your own grief. That's what's being taught to us here. Last thing I'll say about mourning is the consequences are devastating if you re refuse to mourn. Devastating. There's any number of alternatives that people turn to. Sex, pornography, alcohol, any workaholism. I'd rather not look at the pain around me. I'd rather not face the pain in my soul. I'm going to placate it with some sort of a false satisfaction just because it's too much to think about mourning it. Or does the kingdom of Jesus show up on earth and say, no, go through the pain and see the need you have for a king who came and suffered for you? Let me read to you some lyrics from a song that was introduced to me this week before I move to the next, final point. Andrew Peterson wrote a song called Be Kind to Yourself. I watched a video of him playing this at a live concert, and he said, I wrote that song for my 13-year-old daughter who's a lot like her dad. 
He said, I struggle with depression. I, I struggle believing God loves me. I always have. And he said, one night she just needed to be comforted. And so I went out and wrote a song after I tucked her into bed and tried to address her tears. So I want you to think with me about just how much pain there is in this world as I read these lyrics. Just how much need we have to mourn with each other. First verse, you got all that emotion that's heaving like an ocean and you're drowning in a deep, dark well. I can hear it in your voice that if you only had a choice, you would rather be anyone else. I love you just the way you are. I love the way he made your precious heart. A father sings to his daughter. I know it's hard to hear it when the anger in your spirit is pointed like an arrow at your chest, when the voices in your mind are anything but kind, and you can't believe your father knows best. Do you know anybody that that might describe? So angry, no longer angry at circumstances, angry at self. And, and whenever the transition from circumstances to self goes, how much depression, hatred, sorrow is there in this world? How does it end when the war that you're in is just you against you against you? Got to learn to love, got to learn to love, learn to love your enemies too. Peterson saying, for some of us, the greatest enemy that we could never love is ourself. Got to love your enemy too. That's just one song. I like music. Make it a poem. Commit that you will not turn away from the things in this world that require grief. All right, I'm going to do this third one briefly. Blessed are the meek. Meekness is not a synonym of weakness. It's humble strength, calm boldness. Biblical examples of super strong servants of God. How about this one? Moses. Moses, in Numbers 12, verse 3, Moses is described. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than any of all the people on the face of the earth. That's pretty meek. Guess who wrote the book of Numbers? Moses. I don't know how that fits, because it doesn't sound like meanness to me, but... It was not his natural disposition to be meek. If you read chapter 2 of Exodus, Moses has this holy anger inside of him to matter, to do great things, and he's always fighting. God shows him his glory and humbles him and makes him into a meek servant. Doesn't that sound a little bit like the Apostle Paul, who was ruthless before he met Jesus? Ruthless, take no prisoners. I'll destroy you if you get in my way. 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about the thorn in his side and he said it was God's good work to harm me, to give me something because God was training me that when I am weak, then he is strong. God desires that we be meek. But meekness is also a result of those who realize that we don't have it in ourselves to break our own pride. We don't know how to destroy our own sense of self-sufficiency unless God puts us in a position where we are no longer sufficient for anything. I just ask you, have you seen the work of God's Holy Spirit to make you more meek than you otherwise would be? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We will inherit the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus if we understand now that there's not an ounce of strength and power that we brought into that equation to make us worthy of such an inheritance. And that's what it means to be meek. I read this week, there's probably no more beautiful quality among any Christian in this world than meekness. 
So look at your daily habits. Are you seeing God work in a way that he's cultivating meekness in you as opposed to pride? Okay, back to the beginning. And close up and we'll look at the gospel and take the Lord's Supper. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm tired at 45 years old. I'm tired of being under construction. Maybe you are too. You look at this text and you say, this is the blessing afforded us, except I have a problem with not being poor in spirit. I don't mourn the things I should. I get more mad when the house is messy than I do the heart of a child. And I'm certainly not me because I would love to be noticed if I'm strong. I'm tired of being under construction. You feel that way sometimes? And as soon as we go to that, then we have the next response, which is, how then can I know the blessingness, the blessedness of this kingdom? And yet the scriptures say Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness and to give that blessedness to those who trust in him. So what was our declaration of forgiveness earlier? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. There's that word, whose sin is covered. Because we're not Psalm 1. We're, you and I aren't the, the blessed one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, sits in the seat of scoffers. That's not you. It's not me. It was Jesus. So we think, well, how in the world can I know this blessing except through him coming to fulfill all righteousness? And when he came, was his spirit poor? Philippians 2, he voluntarily humbled himself. He was God. He was the righteous, poor in spirit one. Did he not mourn for those who hurt? John 11, did he not weep with Mary and Martha, knowing he was about to raise their brother from the dead? And how about meekness? Did he come flaunting the kingdom that was his? Or does Matthew 11 tell us that he was perfectly gentle and lowly? All right. Jesus is the only reason you and I can have any confidence that there's blessing. <laughs> but the problem is, is if we're not looking at who Christ is in the scriptures and we get up in the morning and we look in the mirror or we do worse and we look at our phone and start scrolling, it's pretty quick to be like, I'm nothing like the king. And as soon as you go into that place of saying, I don't deserve his blessing, I don't look anything like it, what is starting to develop in you? A poverty of spirit. And the inheritance of the kingdom is, those, is for those who are poor in spirit. So as we take the Lord's Supper, let me ask you to have this in your mind. Consider how undeserving are you to receive any blessing from God, let alone credited with his righteousness by faith, let alone him taking the curse of the wrath of God for you. As you partake, you need to think strongly that you don't deserve it at all. But because it's been given to us by grace through faith, then you come forward with a confidence of those who know they'll inherit the kingdom with the king of mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we take the Lord's Supper, we would be moved and nourished by the gospel. We believe who you say we are. We're blessed in Christ. We're blessed in your kingdom, even though we know we've not performed to deserve any blessing at all. Would you grow faith in us today? Would poverty of spirit invade this room as we take the Lord's Supper with confidence and gratitude? In Christ's name I pray, amen.